Hi, this is Caroline Degatti, editor at clearancejobs.com, and welcome to this episode of Clearedcast. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Jack Barsky, a former undercover agent in the KGB Illegals program. Starting in the 1930s, the Illegals program sent Russian sleeper agents posing as natives to live abroad in countries like Great Britain and the U.S. Barsky's autobiography, Deep Undercover, tells the unlikely story of how this communist spy from East Germany became a patriotic American businessman. Jack, welcome to the program. I'm so excited to have you. Excited to have been invited. Thank you so much. I have kind of a, a funny question. Did you know that if somebody goes to look up the definition of a sleeper agent on Wikipedia, your name shows up? <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Uh, yes, that's a true claim to fame, right? <laughs> well, let me tell you, uh, uh, there, I think the the true claim to fame is when you hit the cover page of the National Enquirer, which happened to me uh, <gasps> about two weeks after my book came out. <laughs> really? Oh, my. I have to look for that now. That that is true fame, sir. <laughs> you you have reached you have reached the pinnacle. Screaming headline was Donald Trump discovers uh, Russian agent in White House. Oh, <laughs> gotcha. I guess I guess they hadn't figured out that the uh, the FBI had already caught on to you by that point. <laughs> it sells papers. So your name is Jack Barsky. It's on your passport. It's your legal name. You are an American citizen. But it has not always been that way. So what was your birth name and where did you grow up? My birth name, every time somebody in the United States asked me to, to pronounce that, you know, I, I warn people not to try to imitate it because for American speakers, it's next to impossible. So here it goes. I'm going to say it really slow. Albrecht Dietrich. <laughs> so Albert Dietrich, is that is that correct? <laughs> That's a nice transcription. Uh, yes, <laughs> transliteration. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in, in a, a remote corner of what was then East Germany, Soviet occupied uh, initially, uh, and then which became the German Democratic Republic for some of the older audience. Uh, the, I think the GDR was really well known for its athletic prowess, which then later turned out and had a lot to do with doping. Hmm. Interesting. Even that far back. Oh, yeah. So then who was Jack Barsky? Well, are you talking Jack Barsky now? Or are you talking uh, the German uh, as I was who growing was, up? Who was the original Jack Barsky? Oh, the original Jack Barsky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, was a actually a person. Uh, and this person died at an early age. I think it was uh, at the age of 11 was quite typical for Soviet modus operandi with regard to stealing identities. You would have diplomats running around in cemeteries and looking for gravestones that indicated the individual died at an early age, and they would some way try to find uh, a way to get a copy of a death certificate or birth certificate, and that way steal the identity of, of that individual who was departed early in life. On your paperwork, and just sort of out of curiosity, whose birthday do you celebrate, Albrecht Dietrich's or Jack Barsky's? Well, at my age, you don't celebrate any birthdays. <laughs> <laughs> to to um, uh, not have the family all confused, uh, we <laughs> celebrate on the uh, uh, Jack Barsky birth date. Okay. Uh, 
selfish reason for that. It makes me six months younger. <laughs> Very nice. And it keeps everything clean. Gotcha. You, you might be one of the only people alive who's ever gotten to choose your birthday. Well, I didn't choose it. I, I had a pickup mm. yeah, between Fair. two. Yes, and that's true. <laughs> if my daughter ever were, were to write a memoir, she could entitle it, My Daddy Has Two Birthdays. And there was an, a, a moment that, that was quite embarrassing and potentially dangerous. I was still undercover, under the protection of the FBI, but I was still operating under my illegally obtained documentation. And my daughter and a friend of hers crashed a staff meeting that I had at the time in May, which is my real birth month. <laughs> she came in and sang happy birthday. The, thank God nobody in in that meeting actually knew that my uh, my official birthday was in November. <laughs> well, <laughs> so many close calls. That's a funny one. So one of the things that I really appreciated about your book, Deep Undercover, is that you're not just telling the story of you as a spy. You give a lot of background on what it was like growing up in post-war East Germany, your family, and just the evolution of your personal faith in communism. And one of the stories that really stuck with me was your story about visiting Buchenwald, the concentration camp, when you were a kid with your classmates. How did that impact your belief in your communism and your worldview in general? Well, this was sort of the capstone that sealed it for me. We were not exactly kids anymore. We were 17 at the time. But you think about it, a 17-year-old is confronted with exhibits that include shrunken heads and lampshades made out of human skin and all kinds of absolutely gruesome things that the Nazis had done to people that they didn't like, that uh, that they wanted to exterminate, such as the Jews. I mean, even now, when you look at something like that, your heart just like brings and, and you just want to scream. As a, How can people do something like that to any other individual, never mind masses and masses of people? So this was a very well orchestrated visit. The rulers of East Germany, communists, used these visits to instill in us that we were the heirs of the the, uh, the forces that fought the Nazis. And it, it is a historic fact that uh, prior to 1933, when, when that's the year when Hitler came to power, the communists were the only folks that fought the brown uh, shirts in the streets actively. The link to all of this was the fact that the leader of the Communist Party who was imprisoned in Buchenwald was executed in that place two months prior to the end of World War II. So now you look at this, when I tell audiences about this, I juxtapose the Ernst Thermann, the Nazi fighter, with a fellow who was in charge of the equivalent of this military intelligence for Hitler. And, and right now the name just escapes me. And he was co-opted by the CIA and eventually wound up uh, heading the, the Bundesnachrichtendienst, which is the equivalent of the CIA in West Germany. So we had, on the one hand, we were the heirs of, of the communist anti-Nazis, and the Nazis were still in charge in West Germany. That was enough for me. I knew we were on, I was on the right side of history, and I was 
that's, that, that sealed my commitment for a long time. When you were growing up in East Germany, instead of identifying with the shame that the, the generation after the war in West Germany might have dealt with, that was a different group of people who did that, right? That, that your ideological compatriots, they weren't responsible for that. That's a very good question. There was no shame on our part. We were not the guilt. We were not uh, associated with the guilty party. The, uh, there was the, the denazification process in, in the East was very radical. Mm. For instance, uh, I think only one third of the teachers were allowed to keep their jobs. The other two thirds uh, were like my parents. They were newly trained uh, uh, teachers that went through a, a program for about a year uh, because no uh, no members of the old Nazi party were allowed to teach. In the West, they a lot more lenient with this. Mm -hmm. So it made it easy to see them as the continued enemy. I always call this an unforced error, meaning, you know, this is a tennis term, an unforced error if, if you just give a point away. The United States gave several points away, propaganda points to the East by doing that. But that actually helped us to you know, uh, present the united front against the West because we knew, you know, there, there was neo-Nazis sitting there, and even in, in in the West German government. With those experiences, growing up with that point of view, but also just growing up in your family and your own personal experiences, how did that lay the foundation for your life as a spy? Well, there's a number of things that that are required for somebody, an individual like me, to decide to do this kind of work. After after you approached and asked, well, would that be something you're interested in? There's there's two personal things that that made me be interested in one. One of them is my desire to travel. And we weren't uh, allowed to travel in the western direction. We were only allowed to travel towards the east. The other one was, you know, the the knowledge that I would be somebody super, super special that appealed to my arrogance and, and my knowledge that I, I was somebody special and, and that would be confirmation. But but without an ideological foundation, that's not enough. I had the ideological foundation that says you're going to embark on something very good and what you're doing is not selfish, even though you might be able to do things that are you know interesting and and. and and, and set you apart, so to speak. But without that ideology, I wouldn't have done it. Mm, yeah. This was not about money. Mm. This, it couldn't have been about fame because you're doing undercover work. Mm -hmm. the, the ideology was the, was the, the foundation for, for all of that. Yeah, which I think makes your transition all the, all the more fascinating. We'll get to that in a minute. So the illegals program was started, I think, by the NKVD, the predecessor to the KGB, the interwar period. So in the 30s, where they sent a lot of agents to to Great Britain, to the U.S., and then obviously that continued into the Cold War. To some extent, it, it continues today. And this is clearly the stuff of spy novels, right? So when Americans hear about this, I think a lot of people think about the FX show, The Americans, that I believe you served as a consultant and actually appeared on the show. Is that correct? I didn't serve as a consultant. They didn't need me, even though when I showed up on the set, uh, I pointed out a few things. They, they were 
very proud of, you know, being very authentic to their props and clothes and everything. And immediately I saw a book on the, on the shelf and said, that book wasn't out when, when this episode plays. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I've gotten to know the, the producers pretty well. And I was uh, an extra on for one of the scenes that, that was interesting to see how the, the, the sausage is made. <laughs> a whole morning to shoot the scene that uh, when it played was 20 seconds long. <laughs> That's the way it goes. So in addition to those sort of small things that you noticed, where have you found the the reality of living undercover departs from the Hollywood image of it? And then what things are accurate that you found to be true to life? When it comes to the espionage activities, it's day and night. It's uh, it's black and white. It's not whatever is being depicted show, and even more so in the James Bond movies and uh, the uh, Jason Bourne movies. It's so far away from the truth. It defies description. My life was 95% waiting and 5% action. You can't show that on TV and keep an audience. So they made a lot of things up, and and these two super spies. Based on how they behaved and what they did, they wouldn't have lasted more than, than six weeks. They were wide open for discovery. You know, the whole idea of having a functioning business and then doing all these other things. And then for this guy being married to this other woman in secret, this is asinine. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and also, obviously, this is a dramatic move. The notion that your handler is actually stationed in the country is, that was a no-no. I never, never met person to person a Soviet agent in the United States. Instructions were strictly given through Morse code, period. And and my responses or whatever the reports I wrote was through secret writing, never any in, uh, interaction. That's way too dangerous. If you live this kind of an undercover life, the most important thing is to not stand out and not do a lot of things that where people would scratch their heads and what is he doing? Why is he always in at night? You know, why is the light on at three in the morning every every Thursday? So no pattern that uh, appears to be unusual in this couple did everything in the book that would have allowed the FBI uh, counterintelligence to discover them rather quickly. I just want to want to point that out. I, most of it. A lot of the people who are listening here, they they dwell in that world, and I'm sure that they would agree with you that you know while it's an extremely exciting life, yeah, most of what you're doing to on the day to day is not car chases and poisoning world leaders with the like with an umbrella <laughs> by something. So I agree with that. But I also think that the level of drama, you were somebody who lived next door to Americans who never knew that you were a spy and who was probably observing the goings on of everybody around you and reporting that back to a nation that at the time was a a bitter enemy. I would be curious to know, do you think that is for the benefit of the public, that it makes that enemy and those stakes more real? I'm not sure which way you're going. You're not going back to the Americans that show, is that correct? I think in the Americans, but I think in in general, there's a level of exaggeration in the spy novel, in the James Bond, but the level of seriousness seems unexaggerated. Now, now you see, and and this is a question that uh, labels you an American because <laughs> you, 
you know better than that, but since you're asking the question, this is quite relevant in, in this country. Americans are very trusting, very naive, and are not aware of the, the dangers that our enemies present. That has a lot to do with the history of the United States as opposed to compared to the history of Europe, where you know the history of Europe was a history of wars where you constantly have to you know, watch out because your neighbor might want to invade you. There has fundamentally not ever been an invasion that got onto American soil from, from a foreign power, except if you want to count the England. But the Americans just can't relate to that. Mm. During the height of the Cold War, you know, we're talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs and all this stuff. There may have been some more awareness, but today... La di da. It's truly amazing, and and the threats are out there, and and this is this really uh, does a lot. This kind of a insouciant attitude does a lot of damage to us because we are we are allowing the enemy to to do lots and lots of uh, damage and in cyberspace and otherwise. You know, the the Chinese and the Russians are spying like uh, like crazy. Yeah, I'm sure that doesn't come as news to a lot of the people who are listening. I think they. They feel similarly that these are real risks, but in general, it's not something that has permeated the, the public consciousness yet. So when you're talking about just the threats now versus threats then, uh, you arrived in New York in 1978. Is that correct? Yes, you know your facts. Thank okay. you. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. So, so when you arrived and you were there for about 10 years while you were still officially working for the KGB, right? Yes, 10 years uh, for the KGB in New York City. At that time, what were their biggest concerns? What information were they most hoping to get from you? And what was the, the overall apparatus most concerned about, both in the U.S. and around the world? Well, what the Soviets were concerned about, primarily the Americans. And during my time, there were two presidents and power, at least two. I, I don't know where Gerald Ford fits in. Jimmy Carter and then Ronald Reagan. We, and I say we, that because I'm now putting myself back in into into that time. We hated Jimmy Carter and his uh, national security advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski because of their human rights policy. This was like pinpricks. It was totally annoying because it actually pointed to a vulnerability, particularly of the Soviet Union, which I wasn't even aware of, but we just hated. They were nuisance makers. Then Ronald Reagan came onto the scene and he went to Berlin and said, Mr. Gorbachev, turn down that wall. And then he, uh, they had the Star Wars program and he talked, he was a, a Christian man and occasionally talked in, in language that uh, appeared to be connected to the end times. Literally, the Soviets were concerned that Ronald Reagan single-handedly will start a, a nuclear war. That was the main concern. And I was uh, trained and directed to gather political intelligence, which means I was supposed to, A, 
take the pulse of the American public, what they think about certain things, and also, more importantly, uh, try to get close to decision makers or people who influence decision makers. I did not succeed in that uh, regard because I wasn't positioned in society to join a country club, to introduce myself to, let's say, somebody at Columbia University where Brzezinski was teaching at the time. That didn't happen. That is what uh, my main task as far as intelligence was concerned. At, towards the end, the last two years of my existence there, I was also encouraged to see if I can steal some technology, anything, mm-hmm. in, you know, particularly in the computer field, because I was working with computers at the time. Interestingly enough, and here's a, something that has changed over time, when I worked at MetLife, uh, I was in, in the group uh, health uh, insurance business, I had access to the health record of uh, close to 15 million Americans, some of whom worked in factories and and, uh, companies that that made weapons and airplanes. And I told the Russians that I, you know, I had access to those records and they were not interested. (laughs) It's, It's mind boggling. They were so far behind in their thinking. Nowadays, everybody knows that data is where it's at. I'm glad they didn't realize the value of that. So sort of following from that, then, what do you feel were either the chinks in either the strategy of the KGB, but the the Soviet Union in general, or in its ideology that eventually caused the the collapse of the the USSR? The reason for the collapse was that a communist economic system does not work. And I had personal experience with that. In my youth, we we didn't pay too much attention to it. Like, you know, I also got, besides going to high school, we also had to learn a profession at the same time, like a, a trade. I learned the trade of a machinist at a uh, coal gasification plant. And there I saw, witnessed the laziness of the people who, who used every excuse not to work mm. on everybody. There's a, there's a certain percentage of people who, who can't help themselves. I'm one of them. We just got to work. But a lot of people just don't do what is necessary to, you know, to be productive. And so the overall system became very top heavy. And then, then when that, that happens in the GDR and it happens in the Soviet Union to some extent, in order to keep the masses at bay and keep them believing in the communist ideal, the communist governments overspent on things like uh, um, housing, as poorly constructed it was, but in both of these countries, there was a lot of destruction uh, uh, based still from World War II, and housing had to be rebuilt from way from pretty much from scratch, but there weren't enough funds available and the the entire economic system couldn't do it and eventually it just collapsed. That was it. And I don't believe it was as much the ideology uh, as it was the, the not keeping the promise, the promise of, you know, nirvana, communist nirvana. It just didn't happen. Now, there were other things, but, you know, if somebody thinks that the desired to be free and be a free thinker was something that motivated the majority of the population. I don't believe it. Now, the East Germans wanted to travel. You know, Germans have a, there's a German word, it's called Wanderlust, that means uh, the, the joy of, of wandering around. And East Germans really wanted to travel. 
the Russians not so much. So I, I have to bring it back to the economic system. Ultimate collapse was facilitated by sort of counter-revolutionary, if you want to call them that, uh, forces who, who were more progressive and were more anti-communist. It went rather quick. It went quicker than anybody in the West expected. For you personally, since you weren't, communism didn't go out of style with you because of economic reasons. By that time, you were already in the U.S. You, you know, had a good job. When did you personally start doubting your communist beliefs, start feeling of that perhaps the, the great enemy of America and the West wasn't what you expected it to be? I had the luxury of uh, very slow decontamination. And by comparison, my contemporaries in East Germany, when that wall came down, they felt like they were just hit over the head with a two by four. Uh, and a lot of them have not been able to, to really fully digest this. My first doubt, so to speak, started with my professional career as a computer programmer. I was hired by MetLife, and back in, in East Germany, we were always taught that some of the worst and the most evil companies would be the banks, the military-industrial complex, and insurance companies. I get go to work for one of those evil companies, and they were very nice to me. <laughs> and the work was good. My bosses were nice to me. We even had free lunch. Uh, so I got to a point where I sort of joined uh, a, an ideological uh, belief that was distributed by social democrats in Europe. Uh, it's, it's, it was called convergence theory. The theory said that eventually the communist system and the capitalist system will converge and create some kind of a hybrid where there is competition, but there is a phenomenal social uh, safety net and everybody can make a decent living. Some of those European countries that have such systems nowadays, but so, and, and this, in, interestingly enough, I found this with some of the folks back uh, in Moscow with the KGB who, who thought along similar lines. I was still not an anti-communist. You know, when the wall came down, I just said, oh, I, that was a surprise to me, but, you know, it didn't really, uh, didn't really uh, emotionally impact me one way or the other. This was not my country anymore. And, and what I did, I sort of withdrew from the world of ideologies and the world of uh, international politics, and I crawled into a private shell uh, that was heavily tinged by consumerism. Buy a house, have another child, get a car, get another car, buy a bigger house. When I finally became what I am today now, a, a strong anti-communist, that, that happened um, also over time. Once the wall came down and the internet made it possible to do, to do research from your computer, I found a lot of things that opened my eyes as how bad the Soviet Union was, how bad the, the German Democratic Republic was, stuff I didn't know, how bad even my number one hero was, and that was Vladimir Lenin, because I was able to read some passages in, in his uh, uh, works that were not accessible to us. Things like where he would clearly encouraged people to go out and murder rich peasants just because they had too much land. 
very slowly the blinders were taken off and I now know 100% that if you want to call them experiments, they were failed experiments and they, whatever may have started with a clean heart and communist ideology or became uh, ruthless dictatorships. And that's still the case with, with oh, fundamentally every country that started out with a revolutionary ideal. Look at Cuba. You know, I, I believe Castro was a internally honest. He really wanted to do the right thing. And then he had to defend what the victory and that makes you into a ruthless dictator. And that's what happens every time. I know you're not a Russian, but obviously we're so influenced by by their political system and by their culture. Do you feel like Russia has ever really recovered from that? Or do you feel like they might be sliding back into that type of authoritarianism? <laughs> Clearly, it's an they, they now have an, an authoritarian government uh, and and still a large part of the population still wishes to have somebody like Stalin back. That, that's part of I, what I call the, the Russian national DNA. They have, since Russia came into existence in the Middle Ages, they have always looked for a strong man to defend their country because they were constantly invaded from the south, from 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 the east, from the west, they were constantly under siege. And one of the answers to, to that was to create a buffer zone by, you know, integrating all these republics around Russia. Nowadays, it's the same thing. It's uh, uh, There was really never a time when Russia wasn't an, an autocratic, uh, didn't have an autocratic government. True. They've had a, a wonderful variety of them, but indeed, that's been the, the common thread through most of them. And the most murderous one was was the one under Stalin. That was, you know, the outcome of the communist revolution. And it's enough said. Thank you for listening to this episode of ClearCast. Please visit news.clearancejobs.com for more security clearance news, insights, and information. Have a lovely day.